This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. The plant-based milk space has exploded in the past few years. The market is set to hit $16.3 billion this year, and there has been an enormous influx of companies looking to get into this booming industry. While surely there are a number of companies who are just looking to make a fast buck with plant-based milks, for Jim Richards, the CEO of Milkadamia, producing macadamia-based dairy alternatives is about so much more. I recently got the chance to speak with Jim about Milkadamia and learn the history behind their family-owned macadamia farms and how they went from selling nuts that mostly ended up covered in chocolate to producing a healthy and sustainable dairy-free milk. In this conversation, Jim talks about why Milkadamia's Australian macadamia nut farms are different than any other commercial producers and discusses some of their regenerative farming techniques. He gets into the anti-inflammatory properties of macadamia nuts and also shares the challenges and obstacles they faced and gets into how the company ended up in Illinois to make their product a reality. Jim is incredibly passionate about making better products and speaks to why he believes values drive consumer buying decisions in addition to price, taste, and convenience. As such, he explains how Milkadamia has incorporated these values into their unique and quirky marketing and how they hope to continue to build and expand their brand from plant-based milks and beyond. Producing a product that is as good for people as it is for the environment is a top priority for Milkadamia, and that sentiment comes through clearly in this engaging interview. James Richards, thanks so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for um, inviting us. So, you know, I've heard of um, free-range chickens, and I've uh, also heard of free-range kids. But when I came across Milkadamia, it was the first time I heard of something called free-range trees. So um, can you care to explain what free-range trees are and how is Milkadamia connected to that? So I think um, it's the first time it's actually been said, um, free-range trees. We, we use that because we wanted to emphasize um, that it's not just the food that we finally end up with, but it's, it's how it got there, you know, how it's grown and, and what, what went into uh, the making of the food. 
we want people to consider that as much as um, the usual things like, you know, taste and mouthfeel and um, whether they find it a great experience or not. Um, we see um, some things are evolving. You know, it used to be that um, wellness was all about nutrition, you know, only, only how good the food was that we put in our mouths. That's all we considered. But we've seen uh, wellness and health be extended to where people think um, broader than themselves, you know. Um, how does it affect others? How does it affect the whole planet, for that matter? And um, free-range trees are the beginning of our statement in that area. So we say free-range trees, and on our pack, we have a, um, a definition for free-range trees. So free-range trees are trees supporting life, not trees on life support. There are, there are trees that are tethered to uh, irrigation systems. You know, they, um, they can't survive without um, irrigation, without water being drawn from beneath the earth. You know, water that is called reserves, um, where those reserves are being consumed um, because the tree's been planted in the wrong place rather than any other reason. And so if a tree is planted in the right place, you don't need to have all that external support. There's a lot less energy goes into the tree. So macadamias are a native Australian rainforest tree. Um, our, our farms are right beside the forest where they came into being. And so the climatic conditions, the, um, the rainfall, the amount of sunshine, all those things are consistent, or at least consistently inconsistent. You know, farmers are never happy with the weather. But um, but we never have been, you know, because it, it cycles and um, goes backwards and forwards. But um, if if a a plant is put in place, then everything around it um, and the plant itself add to life. If it's, if it's taken out of place, you know, any plant that's out of place, we actually have a term for it, and they're called weeds. Mm. Um, and that really doesn't matter if it's a tree or whatever, you know, if it's if it's out of place. Um, Either we have to have a lot of inputs to keep it alive or it, it runs feral. So free-range trees um, are really the beginning of a long conversation we want to have on um, agriculture. Yeah, We had to start somewhere. We couldn't get too earnest on day one. And um, we, because we want to bring as many people on the journey um, and have them um, enjoy the journey as possible, we're trying to keep it somewhat light and with a bit of humour involved as well. So free-range trees, it's an oxymoron, you know. Yeah. I appreciate the the background. That is um, that is so um, important to bring up because um, in the plant-based or non-dairy beverage aisle, there's, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, uh, there's a, so much competition right now. And um, while almond milk seems to be leading the way, uh, a fact to keep in mind with almond milk is most of almonds, um, 80% of the world's almonds come from California. Almonds are not native to uh, California, as far as I know, and um, kind of require a huge amount of um, irrigation. And while farmers are getting better at water management, um, we know that's still a pretty water-intensive process, uh, so, which is an interesting conversation to have. Almonds are undoubtedly better than dairy, but if you kind of stack them up against some other options, they may fall far behind, at least from a sustainability standpoint. Do you feel that consumers, I think you kind of mentioned that, that consumers are interested in connecting with um, a product beyond just uh, taste and um, price 
and convenience. Uh, is that a trend that you noticed or is that is that the reason you focus on sustainability because that is who you are as a company? It's because it's who we are as a company. We own our own farms um, and we were running the farms you know, long before we launched Milkadamia. So our our ethos and values and, and, and the things that we love um, centre around the farm and the land and the trees and, and everything else that lives there. And um, we, we had two reasons for getting into milkadamia or macadamia milk at all. One was because we were growing this this beautiful product, macadamias. They are um, they're healthy. They you know they're they're a great food. But we used to, as we sold our product, we saw it get turned into candy. You know that people would wrap it in chocolate or roast and salt it, and and it was treated as a um, as an occasional indulgence. Mm. And like all nuts, it's actually a really, really healthy product. And so um, each nut also has its own sort of superpower. And the superpower from macadamia is how um, incredibly anti-inflammatory it is all through the digestive tract. And, you know, just about every discomfort and every disease that we ever experience starts with inflammation. So if we can, um, or has inflammation as part of its early stage, if we can if we can um, reduce inflammation, we are doing people a favor. And so we had this lovely product with this great attribute that was just ignored. You know, macadamia's biggest problem is it tastes so good. Hmm. People people love the taste. They love eating uh, macadamias, and they do taste great roasted and salted, you know. They do taste great in chocolate. But we felt that that part of the um, industry, that part of, macadamia's um, reason to exist was well and truly catered for, but yet no one was talking about macadamia's in, in wellness. And no one was talking about macadamia's in terms of it being such a natural um, product. So we, after years of frustration, you know, trying to get other people interested in this concept within the industry, we decided to go to go it ourselves. And at that point, we didn't know how to make a macadamia milk. We didn't even know how to begin to make a macadamia milk. But all this was designed in our own kitchens and, you know, in, in bowls and jars and, and uh, things that we had around the place with multiple, multiple attempts. Um, we finally got to a product that, that we feel is, is that is, is, as good as it ought to be. Yeah. It's a, it's a real challenge starting with something that tastes as good as macadamia if we had produced a product that didn't taste good, um, that's going to be a fail. <laughs> Obviously. You can't go from delicious to not delicious. So right. so um, in the process of doing that, we found that we, we could only get the sort of taste and creaminess that we wanted if we used raw macadamia. So every time we tried to use roasted, um, the, the oils are denatured and things change. It just wouldn't work right. So as an added benefit of you know trying to get something that tastes good, we've ended up with... A, raw macadamia product, which we are really proud of and happy with too. We think that that adds plenty to the story. Yeah, and being a raw product, you actually are be able to retain the oils and the nutritional value of the nuts, I'm assuming, as you turn them into milk. Yeah, we can. Look, the, the milk, um, when what we put in there is absolutely raw. Um, it's not even processed in any way other then we do grind it down to a very fine paste. 
um, we've had to build our own machine to do that because when you try and grind anything, nuts or grains, the the grinding surfaces themselves can get really hot and then you're actually cooking it as you put it through. So we had to develop grinders that have all this chilled water running through them to keep them cold so that we didn't, didn't you know, accidentally and incidentally um, cook our macadamia. Mm. But we've, we've kept them raw. But when they do go through, we have, we have two versions of macadamia. One is a chilled product. It's a um, you know, fresh chilled product. The other is ambient. And um, when you make the ambient product, it does get flash heated at the very end of the process. There's, there's no other way to do it, unfortunately. So while all the inputs are raw up to that point, it is um, it's flash heated um, right at the very end. That doesn't cook it or anything else, but just to be perfectly clear, you know, it does get that that um, one pulse of heat right at the very end. Right. No, I also want to get you know I want to kind of go back to um, our discussion earlier about the actual farming practices um, and touch on that a little bit more before we we dive deeper into your products because. Um, the more I learned about macadamia trees, um, it, the more fascinating it seemed, considering you grow them in a part of um, Australia where those trees are native and you plant more trees. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the farming techniques used? Because um, I know they're very unique in the sense that you use regenerative agriculture and you kind of let the ecosystem do its own thing versus what some people you know, have a view of farming these days, which is a very mechanized, very uniform, um, and very mass scale. Uh, how are you able to do macadamia nut farming sort of at scale, but still keep it in a way that is um, kind of in, in tune with uh, the ecosystem and, and farming practices that have existed for centuries? Um, it, it happens somewhat um, serendipitously for us, we, our farmer, um, who is our owner's son, he is um, bent on natural as far as he, as far as he can make anything natural. He's, um, you know, he's, he, he looks like that too. You know, he's a long haired um, <laughs> farmer who, who, has a passion for the land in a in a way that um, you know a lot of farmers don't. He doesn't just see it as as a way to make money. He doesn't just see it as um, a transaction that you know he undertakes every year. He sees it as a relationship. And so, before we even knew what um, regenerative farming was, a lot of the practices that he was already putting in place um, were truly aligned. The macadamias, um, just one example, is macadamias are. You know, tasty and nutritious, as we've already said, and that, and we're not the only ones who think that. So do rodents. So most macadamia farms um, have a problem with um, keeping the rodents away from these, you know, these delicious um, kernels. And most of them are essentially ringed by, you know, traps and poisons and things to keep them out. Our farmer was just unwilling to do that. He couldn't bring himself to um, to ring this beautiful property with. With poison, so he got a whole lot of um, owls. He found out that a nesting, a pair of nesting owls, can um, eat up to three and a half thousand um, rodents in a year in, in a breeding season. <laughs> and so he found out how to make these boxes that um, that they like to live in, and he put the boxes all around. And that's 
that through the night, and we have he has some fox terriers who do a pretty good job during the day of um, <laughs> making everything lay low. They um, those became our rodent control, which was very different to um, the rodent control that you know the others were using. He also um, uses um, wasps. He, he gets these little wasp eggs and, and staples card pieces of cardboard with these wasp eggs onto all the trees, and they help ward off some things called lacewing that are that are a bit of a disaster if they get carried away in your orchard. Um, he leaves what he calls mohawk strips. The way macadamias grow is um, when they are ready to when they're ripe and ready to um, be harvested, they just drop on the ground. So they just fall off the tree and you gather them from the ground. It's, you pick them up with a, um, a machine that's a lot like those machines you see on driving ranges and they're picking up golf balls. The mm. macadamia is when they've still got the shell on about the same size and we use something that's extremely similar. <laughs> um, but in order to do that, you have to mow the whole orchard, cut it down so that it's like um, a lawn, and, and the whole place looks like this beautiful park with, you know, um, neatly mown lawns with these rows and rows of trees between. Except um, our farmer's issue was that he would lose all the butterflies and all the insects that were all the pollinators that were also important for the whole place. So he used to leave mohawk strips down the middle. That's that's what he ended up calling them. And this is he would only mow directly under the trees, not out into the middle of the rows. And you know, as far as I know, we're the only farm that does that. I've never seen it anywhere else. <laughs> One of the things that he has to contend with in that is that um, because he likes to leave these strips, and, he, and we've got we've got a little patch of um, old stand rainforest in the farm as well that he that he tends and ensures that that's going to be there forever if he can. Um, our farm doesn't look as tidy as some other macadamia farms. Some of them are, you know, they're, they're, they are so manicured and mm. so pristine. You know, you, they look better than any public park you'll ever see. They, they, in a sense, they are truly gorgeous. But we've had to learn a whole new gorgeous, you know, and, and our, you know, when you see the, the tangle of abundant life on our farms and it's, and it's still full of pollinators and, um, it doesn't look as tidy as the others at all. But once you adjust to it, it actually looks more beautiful. Right. And uh, he, he took us down all these avenues before we even knew that there was such a thing as regenerative farming. Um, when we discovered it, you know, and, and we're still on a journey. We're, uh, you know, I don't think we are 100% um, purist regenerative farmers yet. But every time, you know, as we learn and as we... Um, discover things that work for us and that work in that climate and in that place, we, we add them on um, and we will get there. You know, that's the determination. We'll absolutely get there. Now, I mean, obviously you've been, um, you're, it sounds like he has a clear passion for what he's been doing and it kind of speaks to the the natural process that you've been able to create in, in, this, in these large farms that you run. But considering all of this is run out of, I believe, Byron Bay, Australia, was there any, you know, hesitation or um, kind of skepticism on your part or on the part of um, perhaps um, people who were talking, you were talking to from a business standpoint, that you were now going to transport this product from Australia 
to uh, the U.S. and potentially around the world. I guess my question is, did you have some concerns that the huge um, transportation element from from Australia to other parts of the world was going to um, sort of uh, take away from some of the sustainability um, and good farming practices that are great for the environment um, that you had kind of built inherently in your farm. So what I'm you are not local anymore. How do you stay sustainable as you expand globally? And let's start with the U.S. How was that decision made? It was sort of made for us um, to come to the U.S. Hmm. We, you know, we developed our product. Um, we can do everything. We can grow the macadamias. We can um, create the paste, um, develop develop the formulation. The one thing we can't do is put it into the cartons. That's highly technical. Um, you know, hugely expensive equipment to put together. And we had to get someone else to do that, that part for us. Mm-hmm. So um, right up until it went into the box, um, before that was us and after that is all us, but that one piece we couldn't do. So we set out in Australia to try and find someone who would um, be willing to do that for us, and we failed. We, we, we actually delayed the launch of this product by several years while we hunted around for a, um, a processor who would do um, our product for us. And we had two things, two strikes against us. In the end, we couldn't find anyone in Australia, and we had to come to the US. That's really why we came to the US. Um, in Australia, we were... We didn't have any uh, history or credibility in this area. You know, we were we had a macadamia business, but we didn't have a um, non-dairy milk business. Mm-hmm. We had credentials in the macadamia area, but not that other area. And we also had a product that unfortunately contained nuts. You know, and so lots lots of um, processors who may have done it for us had a policy that they wouldn't have any nuts on their premises. So we. We we actually were defeated. You know, we tried and tried, and had, and we had to give up. Um, sometime later, we decided to have a try in the US. We came here and made a list of all the potential places that could possibly make it for us, and we were down to the last two before one of them said that they would do it for us. Um, we are very grateful to them. They, you know, we again had had even less credibility in the US as. Uh, Food producers, we had mm-hmm. no experience here. We, we talked funny, you know. We just sort of didn't do anything <laughs> right. Um, it, all the things that would give someone confidence that these guys might might make a success of this weren't really in place. Um, other than we got them to try the product, they recognised that it was a good product. Um, you know, we showed them our pa- packaging and told them our ideas, and they allowed us to start here. And what that means is. That they will, they made our product in much smaller runs than they normally would, mm-hmm. and that means much smaller runs than are actually commercial for them. They, you know, they are taking a uh, a bet that we might actually get there, and one day it might be worth the losses they're making in the early days. So, um, you know, we're extremely grateful that that they did that. We, um, you know, th- there was a reason people should have had a little doubt in us, and that is that. We actually didn't know what we were getting into. You know, we we were full of enthusiasm and excitement, and this seemed like the greatest adventure of all time, which it has been. But um, 
you know, those aren't necessarily the steps to success. And so, you know, we, we don't begrudge that, that um, other people looked at us and said, yeah, we'll pass. But we're really grateful for these ones who gave us a go. And things have worked out really well for us and for them. So it's, it's been good. Right. So you kind of didn't plan for the U.S. Um, launch. It sort of just happened that the only way you could actually produce and process and package your um, macadamia nut milk was going to be uh, with someone in the U.S., which is why you are in business here. I mean, that's almost almost seems like you failed at something and that's it led to an even even bigger opportunity. Yes. Yeah. It, it, that is how it turned out didn't feel like uh, that at the time. And, and as I said, we we were down to the last two options in the US, so we were pretty close to failing here as well. And um, had that happened, I think um, we may have shelved the whole idea and got on and done other things. Right. But, you know, fortunately it didn't. And and um, and Milkadamia is doing really well in the US. It is. Yeah, we're going to um, talk about that. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, you're now, um, you know, so is there any way we you plan to eventually farm macadamia um, uh, nuts in the U.S.? Is that a possibility? Um, are some parts of the U.S.? I know there's some macadamia nut farming in Hawaii, or do you plan to stay out of your farms in uh, Australia in the long term? We think... Um... You know, if, if the trajectory of sales continues, we're going to have to source product from outside our own um, network. And at, we, right now, we are vertically integrated, mm-hmm. but you know, volume will exceed our our ability to supply eventually. And so, we're already looking at um, what other options there are. Um, and there there's, there are macadamias growing in multiple parts of the world now, as you say, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Guatemala has um, quite a quite a few macadamias growing, and and their macadamia industry is growing rapidly. Um, there's Kenya, South Africa, um, Vietnam, China. You know they're getting planted all over the place. It's a valuable nut. People see an opportunity. Our, what we want to do is use um, our buying power, if we ever end up with any of that, mm-hmm. um, to encourage buy off farmers who have a similar mindset you know so we will look to be a, a some kind of influence or some kind of force to encourage um, macadamia for other macadamia farmers to to go um, the more natural route with how they with how they grow their products right and now, if, if you can start if you can make i think macadamia nut milk the next almond milk you would then have that power oh if we got to that big yes look <laughs> look our our ambitions don't even quite stretch that far i um we macadamias are an expensive nut you know mm-hmm. that that's the basic they they absolutely are and they are that because they're still growing out of a cottage industry mm-hmm. they're um you know they're in high demand, and they can they can achieve um, high prices. The truth is, we would make more money if we just sold our macadamias, um, left them alone, and just sold them as macadamias into Asia than we do doing this milk milk route. Right. Um, but we had already considered that that wasn't that was that was a too easy. You know, it just wasn't something that that got your juices flowing. There was mm-hmm. no excitement about that, and also. All we ever would have been was part of a 
international supply chain and a relatively small part. Um, this way, we feel that we can we can contribute something that uh, we never could if we were just supplying macadamias. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about your products. I mean, you've um, you've barely been in the U.S. I think since 2016, and um, and you, I'm sure you can, you can correct me on these numbers, but I believe you're in with the Walmart deal now. You're in more than 5,000 stores, probably much more than that now, as well as you are also uh, one of your products is in um, around 2,000 cafes. Can you talk about your different products and um, how has this story emerged in the last two years? I mean, how have you gone from this small, um, I wouldn't say a small producer, you were a big, big producer of macadamia nuts, but kind of a new entrant in the booming non-dairy milk space in the U.S. Um, and have gone from being a relatively unknown to a real contender right now in that category, which is very crowded, as I said before. So how did uh, tell me more about the products and how consumers reacted to it and, and how that's kind of uh, growing right now. Um, in in natural, the natural grocery channel, so those are all the... Um, those organic and natural focused grocery channel in the US, we're the number five brand at the moment. There's 37 brands, so you know we're fairly happy to be number five. Wow. Our best selling product also is the number five best selling product in that in that category. Um, and everything is growing very very rapidly. And so you know we, we're we're looking at being number three. Um, our initial goal was to. We thought that there would be a, a day would come when grocers would rationalise this category. You know, there's lots and lots of new entrants. Um, when this happens in a grocery category, eventually they stop and say, "Okay, which ones are actually moving? You know, which ones are um, which ones are driving business for us? Which ones are passengers?" Mm-hmm. And they tend to drop the passengers out. So one of our goals was, "Don't be a passenger. You know, let's drive this." And um, if that day ever comes that there's a rationalisation, we want it to be one of those who survived the rationalisation. That our sort of commercial goals there. Um, but we've actually been in the US three years, not two years. Mm-hmm. Um, we we came with just one product, and that was a barista macadamia milk that was we sold only into cafes. We we did that because. From Australia, you know, when you're um, walking up and down rows of trees in Australia, you can have all kinds of uh, thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. And our thought was that cafes are kind of a uh, they're an incubator of trends. You know, mm-hmm. um, trendy things come out of out of the cafe um, industry. So if we could put a milkadamia into the cafe industry, we this little business who doesn't have any money to spend on mainstream media. Um, this would be a way we could uh, we could enter. So so we came the first year we only had um, our barista product, and it was only sold into cafes. So that that was our first year with um, gaining some distribution in cafes. We we got to about two thousand cafes using our product, which extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we suddenly had grocery wanting to stock our product, and you know, when we looked at the grocery channel, we we came to some conclusions. Um, one of the conclusions we came to was that 
we needed different product. We needed to make a product that wasn't specifically designed to foam and coffee because that's what the other one was. Mm-hmm. Um, that was designed for cereal and smoothies and um, you know all the other things we use milk for. Our at that time our barista product um, had some pH inhibitors in very small quantities, but they were there to um, help it not curdle once it hit the coffee. And we didn't believe that we wanted that in people's refrigerator at home, you know, where kids could come and have a glass, but we had no idea if it was good or not good. Um, You know, it was supposed to be food safe, but it doesn't sound nice, you know, a pH inhibitor, and we just were like, whether it's good or not, we do not want to be um, the people who introduced pH inhibitors into kids' diets, you know, just wasn't. It, it didn't sound right at all. A small amount of coffee, fine, but a whole glass ball and, you know, mm-hmm. um, on your cereal and multiple, potentially multiple glass balls in a day, who knows? You know, we just did not know. We didn't want it to happen. So we so we went back and started again. And we started again with our barista. We thought um, it would take us a few weeks to, to reformulate the barista product, but it actually took us nine months oh. to get a much cleaner label and a much nicer barista product. And um, in the meantime, we had got the other ones into retail and they started to move um, pretty well. We, we had done some things that we hoped would, would help with the sales. And we've already talked about it. You know, we put uh, free range trees um, mm-hmm. on the front mirrors moot. Um, we're not traditional marketers. You know, we, we, we'd be as deliberate and as thoughtful about all that as we know how to be, but we actually don't even know the jargon. And um, (laughs) whenever we've tried to interact with proper marketers, they end up frustrated with us. They think um, (laughs) they're pretty certain we don't know what we're talking about. And, and, you know, it's half the time we don't. But there are some things that seem obvious. And so when we looked at the category we were going into on grocery, you know, the, the branding was so uninspiring. You know, almond milk is called almond milk. Hemp milk is called hemp milk. You know, oat milk. It, it just descriptions, <laughs> not um, not a brand. Yeah. So, milkadamia. Um, we thought we, we need to bring some branding to this. We're, some one of us somewhere found these um, three terms, and it is um, want to proud to and enjoy the experience. And so we sort of made those, not really a mantra, but when we would look at things, we would say, well, would that, you know, would someone want to, would they be proud to? And, you know, will they enjoy the experience? Well, enjoy the experience is all around the use of taste. And um, we could control that by producing a good product. Mm -hmm. But um, want to and proud to are totally different things. You know, why would they there's lots of choices out there and macadamia milk is going to be one of the more expensive ones if not the most expensive one so how do we people have got to believe they're getting value so what value and that brought us to a whole values thing Mm -hmm. and that joined in with you know what we what we believed and so we ended up with this situation where we're saying um, if you look at uh, culture, society. Look at the mood. The um, what's what's happening is that we're all becoming 
slowly for some of us and faster for others. Um, sort of pessimistic about what's happening um, ecologically to the planet. You know, we hear nothing but the ice is melting, the, the forests are disappearing, coals are dying. Um, you know, the sea's heating up and becoming acidic and full of plastic. Well, none of it um, particularly exciting. So we said one of the other things that we need to be is not just another person reading the bad news. You know, mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't want to be bringing um, negativity um, and bad news, but we want to be bringing um, something valuable and new. And first of all, we, we had no idea what that would, would be, really. We were, um, what is the good news? You know, what is, mm-hmm. um, what is worth following and, and exciting? And then we we read lots and lots of um, lots and lots of books, and we did we did marketing our way. Um, one of the things, another rule that we have is we say if anyone else in in the category would do it, then that's probably not right. You know, mm-hmm. If we say something that that could fit on anyone's pack, well, that's probably not right. Let's leave that out. Um, and find and let's not stop until we find something that only we would say, you know, mm-hmm. that, that the others would shy away from. So we've done that as well. Um, which is why we ended up with, you know, Miller's Moot and Free Range Trees. We started producing milk because we wanted to expand um, people's understanding of macadamia beyond candy. Mm-hmm. But we've ended up saying what we have developed now is a billboard that um we need to use responsibly. Mm. And um, once we found out about um, regenerative farming and this statistic, that if 20% of the currently cultivated land switched over to um, regenerative farming, we can not only stop, but we can reverse um, the buildup of carbon in the atmosphere. And that, that staggers me yeah. and excites me. And, and the, main reason it excites me is because we are seeing people make values choices around food. You know, the fact that there's a non-dairy industry at all isn't isn't related to us. You know, we came late to that party. Mm-hmm. Already, um, consumers were, were making choices based on values that that said um, cheap milk is costing us too much. You know, costing the planet too much. Uh, it, it's not a different set of values other than price right. and um, and then convenience and all the usual things. You know, pe- pe- these are less convenient. They cost more. Um, you know, people continually have traded in the non-dairy category um, more money for less products, mm-hmm. but products that um, align closer to their values and that, that, that they can be um, proud of, that reflect their personal branding, that reflect their values. Um, those people, those people who have that sort of values, who who want to do what's right for the planet, oh my goodness, they're the customers we want. I, I guess our biggest dream, the thing that um, that we say to each other, and we haven't never dared say outside of here before, but it is that if we do this well, we could actually um, be influential in giving the world a bit more breathing space. Well, we, you know, I don't think um, regenerative farming is the only solution or even the solution. It's certainly part of it. But it could become a place where um, consumers can demonstrate that 
they're not pawns, that they're not um, powerless in this situation, that actually, together, we, we are the ones who do have the power. We are the ones who can decide what agricultural systems shrivel on the vine and which ones flourish and prosper. Yeah, you're you're so right about that. I mean, I think um, part of what gets lost in some of the discussion sometimes around uh, a lot of the new and exciting uh, food startups in um, the plant-based food world is, um, and, you know, I don't have anything against tech. I'm a proponent of technology and you need technology. Even you've used technology to be able to turn your macadamia nuts Mm -hmm. into delicious milk. But... um, it's an overemphasis sometimes on the technology angle of it, where we forget that um, this is, um, you know, all these products, um, most of the the products available in the non-dairy aisle, all are, all come from the land. They all come from some sort of farming practices. And we have to have both the conversations. We need to talk about the technology that's making the process efficient and more sustainable and more scalable. Um, with less waste and less of an um, environmental impact. But we also need to talk about farming in a way that um, keeps the soil in mind. And we often forget soil as part of this argument. Also, I think what's interesting is that in a very crowded subsegment of the food industry, uh, and a very competitive one, but one that's growing really fast, um, I think one of the reasons you stand out and, and your products stand out is kind of what you just explained about why you have um, your marketing sort of in your branding and your story of your product all about um, sustainability because um, I'm assuming you've already figured out the taste part. You've probably designed your product to have a pretty clean label to be pretty good from a nutritional standpoint. Um, At this point, those things aren't too tough to do in this category. So, what makes you stand out against everyone else? And and obviously, it doesn't sound like you you came up with this or was sold this idea by an agency, but it was just who Milkadamia was and who um, the farmers behind um, the farms that you have in Australia believe in. And you've just basically then reflected that into your message in your packaging as part of your branding and everything else, which I think is a... It's a crucial lesson there, and I don't think it works for everyone. And it, and it's not even about working. It is the lesson there is what makes Milkadamia unique is you are just being yourselves in your packaging, in your messaging, in in how you represent the brand. And I think that also at the end of the day stands out in a very crowded subsegment. Is you're offering a different product. Firstly, it's macadamia nut milk, um, but there may be a ten other companies that may come along and do that. No one else can tell your story. No one else can tell the story of your farms and then use your packaging as a canvas to talk about the bigger issue here when it comes to soil and climate change and regenerative agriculture. So I think that's, um, I'm glad you you spent so much time talking about that because uh, it, it is, it not only tells the story of milkadamia, but it also um is a very important uh, lesson for anyone who's thinking about how to position their product, um, how to keep in mind where consumers are headed. And I think, you know, taste, nutrition, price are important factors, but increasingly consumers are looking at their food choices as a way to make a broader positive impact on the planet today and for generations to come. And 
how is it that the foods that they're going to support and the brands that they're going to support um, reflect those values that they inherently carry. So I, in some ways, I think you are, you are a bit ahead in that front because uh, a lot of companies, I think, shy away from overstating the sustainability angle because um, they, um, they don't give consumers the benefit of, of the doubt that they understand what is happening. Um, I think we need to give consumers the benefit of the doubt that they know this is a concern. They understand their food choices have an impact, positive or negative. And secondly, we need to then use that as, a, as you said, as a canvas to inform them about what that impact is, inform them about how um, farming is tied to their products and how this isn't something that's just made in a factory. It may be a packaged product, but it is something that's natural from the earth and that is actually improving our current ecology and ecosystems that support the planet. So I think all of that's super interesting and fascinating. Um, We could just do an entire episode on that. But um, uh, I want to make sure that before we we go too far down that road, we we talk about what's next for Milkadamia from an expansion standpoint and from a business standpoint. Um, it's, um, I talked about Walmart and I know that's a very recent, um, distribution deal that you have. Um, what's next in terms of from products as well as where you want to be, uh, if you do have a roadmap for the next few years, can you talk about it broadly? Um, yeah, broadly we can. So very soon, um, second quarter this year, we have a range of non-dairy, um, coffee creamers that we will be launching. Um, we are following that up with a macadamia and grain products. So um, back to milks. So mm-hmm. there will be, um, we just want to take the milkadamia brand beyond just macadamias. You know, when you call it milkadamia, you've kind of locked it into macadamias. Um, but we believe we can take it. We can take it beyond there. Um, the, you know, there's commercial reasons you do this. There's a, there's a certain um, need to keep momentum going and a certain need to, to broaden your um, the range of products that you put out there if you want to broaden your appeal. Um, but for us, that also broadens our billboard. So by doing that, we we can talk to more people than we would really talk with. One, one of the really strong things that we have in mind is that um, we aren't perfect. You know, we're not, we don't have all the answers or have everything right. And, um, we, you know, we're on a journey like everyone else is. We're all trying to uh, find out what what has the most validity and what we should do that's going to work best. So we'd never want to present ourselves as having arrived and everyone should take note of that. Um, but we do want to take it wider than just um, macadamia. So that's what you'll see next. Um we have another product um, that that will be coming out again second quarter next year. That's not actually milk at all. It mm-hmm. is um, called Diplat, D-I-P-Z-A-T, um, and that's macadamia oil and um, a collection of herbs that you you take um, like a nice crusty bread, break a piece off, dip it in the oil, and dip it in these this mix of special mix of herbs and stuff that we have. It's, it's absolutely delicious, and um, 
we're doing that simply because we like it ourselves. We think it's actually amazing. So we're, hmm. we're, we don't even know where we're going to sell that yet, which is probably an admission I shouldn't make, but we don't. We've um, <laughs> developed the product. We've, we've got packaging that we think is great. We have um, had a heap of fun putting it together, and we absolutely love all the product trials. You know, we Whenever we go to have one small taste, we eat loads of bread. You know, we just um, – stuff tastes great. So that's something that, that you'll see. And all this time, on the other side of our business, it's the same set of people who do it. Um, we have a range. We had a range of skincare products that um, we were selling into spa for macadamia oil-based skincare products. Again, to to extend um, the knowledge that macadamia is highly anti-inflammatory and that they also um, have health benefits as well as taste benefits. So mm-hmm. we did the milk and the skincare at the same time. The milk has certainly um, taken over most of our time, energy, and enthusiasm. But we're going to circle back to the skincare um, this year and set it all again, not so specifically just for the spa industry, but for um, direct-to-consumers. We have we have some products that are um, that have some some value. We also yeah, we have some products that have some value. They're they're very very good for advanced age skin. They um, people whose skin is breaking down and who have all sorts of problems greatly benefited by um, these products. So we want to get that all in as well, rather than just have it um, sitting in our quiver, an arrow that we never fire. Mm. So we're going to get out and fire that too. Wow, that's all very exciting. It seems like you're on a journey to unleash the power of uh, macadamia nuts on the world, and um, and you're just getting started. I was recently talking to um, someone who's a health expert, and she was touting the benefits of macadamia oil. So I think you know this is this is something more people need to learn about, and um, it's exciting to see that you will be using that um, nutritional power into different kinds of uh, products, both um, food related as well as um, uh, skincare products. So this is all very exciting. Um, Jim, I want to close out with one last um, question. Um, obviously, you have a huge passion for sustainability, and that's what your company and your brand all stands for. If you look ahead, um, you know, 30 years down the line, you know, a lot of people, as you said earlier, paint a pretty dire picture. I mean, they do that even now about the state of our planet, and some scientists believe that it's already too late to uh, to fix things. Um, but if you, I know you're an optimist and so am I, and the show is all about people who are working on solutions. Um, and if you don't work on them, I don't think people will, um, adopt them. So I think we need to keep working. So if you look ahead 30 years, what kind of world do you envision if, uh, the work that you're doing through Milkadamia, um, the message you're trying to spread with, uh, regenerative agriculture and focusing on soil and the importance of soil health, um, for the future of the planet, what kind of world do you see in the year 2050? What does our food system look like? Um, what does the planet look like? Can you paint a picture for me? A few hundred years ago, we we globally had this um, experience we called the Industrial Revolution. And we're now, um, you know, being spun around by the eddies of its passing. You know, the Industrial Revolution enabled us to make lots of cheap stuff, you know, um, and we all have lots of cheap solar stuff now. In fact, you know, our oceans are marinating and it's it's floating around in our sky. And um, I I don't know anyone who doesn't love our sky. 
or doesn't love our ocean. And so we took our eyes off it for a while. What I, what I would like to see um, in 30 years is that we've refocused on the things that, that really, really matter. And the things, nothing is going to be any good if, the, if um, we trade the health of our planet for cheap solar junk. We've got to stop doing that. But that, that again, is a kind of a downer. Um, what I would like to see is this. I, I, even though I supply into the grocery industry, I actually don't like grocery shopping at all. I, it's a chore. If I've got to do that, which I'd avoid if I can, but if I have to do it, um, I just want to get through as quickly as I can and get out of there. I do not enjoy that. But if I'm, if I've got a um, some friends coming over and I've got to get some things for that occasion, everything changes. Suddenly I'm. Um, you know, you're looking for, for um, some special foods that have a story that you can tell your friends when they come. That 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 are artisanal, that have been you know being made by someone who cares, and um, that that come from X place. And you know, you 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 know the food, you know where it comes from, you know the person really cared. Buying that is the opposite of buying groceries. Suddenly, it's fun, you know, and it, and it's compelling and interesting, and and you, the whole thing's a journey that um, is kind of thrilling. We have ended up buying most of our food from faceless enterprises, um, and that's no fun. I I would like to see it. We get back to where um, we're buying it from artisans and hopefully local artisans who we know and we know they care and who um, who have thrown their expertise and their passion into this one thing, you know, whether it be um, whatever it be, you know, cheese, dairy. It really, you know, if it's done well um, and done with concern for the planet, you know, I, I, I'm a um, vegetarian on the path to becoming a vegan. But it wasn't always that. I actually started my working career as a butcher. Mm. Um, I did a butcher apprenticeship back in New Zealand when I it was my first job ever. Uh, helped me become a vegetarian, let me say. But um, it, it's everything needs to be included. I, I think we're it's hopeless if we try and say we're dairy or non-dairy or we're vegan or a meat eater and the other one is uninformed and um, unwelcome. That, that doesn't work. What I like about regenerative farming is that there's one really good measurement. At the end of every year, if you have, you measure the amount of soil that you have on that farm, and if you have added new, brand new life-giving soil, then that's a regenerative farming practice has did that. That's the measure. There's no, it's not that you passed certain um, standards or anything else. It's a your farming practices produce new, brand new, healthy soil um, year on year on year. Now, dairy farms can do that if they operate in a different way. Any farm can. Um, it's it's up to us consumers to make it um, so important that they change because it's the only way they're going to make any money that that will happen. That's what I want to see. I want to see us enjoying mm-hmm. the planet and our food. I, I became a grandfather a little while ago. And I see the world 30 years ahead through her eyes and my granddaughter's eyes. 
and I want her to be able to enjoy the things that we've all enjoyed. I want her to to um, to enjoy the sky and the sea and the land and the trees and you know all the things that um, that make this planet a beautiful place to live. It sounds very tree huggy, doesn't it? No, I think you're you're painting the right picture because um, that is you know what I loved about what you said is that we've just you know, we talk about the last hundred years and assume that this way of running our food system and running our industries and farming is just how it has always been or how it will always be. And I think um, what you're calling for is really um, to look at what we've done in the last hundred years as almost um, a mistake that we've learned from and a small blip in, in the history of humankind on, on this planet. And the only way that we can make that possible is if we now go back to sort of doing things how they were meant to be or learning from those mistakes and applying some new rules and technology to improve our soil, to bring back our oceans, and to make sure that we're going to have a sky that's clear. Um, so that on, that's not going to happen if you don't work on it. And I think the work that you're doing and, and your company is doing and a lot of people within this movement are doing is what's going to get us there. So it may sound um, idealistic and um, and a bit, um, you know, tree-huggery, but at the end of the day, that's what it takes to make sure we can have a thriving human population here. This isn't about hugging trees, I tell people. It is about the future of uh, life on this planet. And if you have a family of friends and kids and grandkids this is the biggest problem we all we all should be tackling. Um, and if you can't do that by running a company like Milkadamia or having a podcast like this, you can definitely do that when you eat at least three times a day. So I'll end with that. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today. Um, I really appreciate all the insights about uh, Milkadamia yeah. and uh, your thoughts on the current state of farming as well as the future. And um, and I wish you the best with uh, all the amazing new plans in the next uh, year and years ahead. Right. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.